We're going to be in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 to the uh, letter, letter to the first church, the church of Ephesus. And beginning in verse 1, it reads, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know yet you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. A couple of years ago, I was at a conference for work in Orlando, and it's already bad when I'm already getting teary-eyed. Not a good sign. Uh, <clears throat> I was up late one night talking with a fellow uh, colleague of mine and, and uh, who was Christian, and we began to share our testimonies with one another, and knowing that I was involved in ministry and youth ministry, he said, you know, I have grandchildren who are uh, <clears throat> in their early teens or approaching the early teens, and, you know, whenever they stay with me, I make them come to church with me, and, but they're just not passionate. They don't love Jesus. So what is your advice? How can I get them to get there? I, I told him that that was a work of the Holy Spirit. But I left him with a question. I said, you want your grandchildren to be passionate for Christ, to love Jesus. Let me ask you, because he let me know that his family, his, their parents were not Christians. They had no Christian influence in their life at all. He was it. So I asked him, are you passionate about Christ? Do you love Jesus? And he looked at me, leaned back in his chair and said, no. Not as I should. I said, why would you expect it from them if you who is professing it to them lacks this love and passion? That story brings us to our text this morning and leads us to the question, what happens when a church loses their love for Christ? We'll be continuing our study in uh, chapter 2. We looked last week at John's vision of the glorified Christ. The chapter closed with the Lord explaining to a terrified John that the seven stars in his right hand were the angels, or in Greek can be translated... Um, uh, to mean messenger, and, and can be understood as pastor or, or maybe even elder. Um, the context in which angels is used in, in Revelation is predominantly those of angelic beings, but um, looking at the context and, and looking at what we know about angels, they are servants um, to God's people. And <clears throat> there's no reason to believe that this message would be conveyed to an actual angelic being, but to the pastor or elder. The lampstands represented the churches in which those pastors lead. And I would like to make a quick statement here. We all know that the book of Revelation is a book containing judgment. Judgment on an unrepentant, sinful world. And although the, that, that is true, you must first look that the first acts of judgment that the Lord gives out 
is that to his own church. Although the judgment is not the same as it will be for the unbelieving world, God still directs his first act of judgment toward his church. And this has always been the case as we look back in the Old Testament and see God's dealing with Israel. 1 Peter 4.17 states, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. This is, this is no different than you know, when a parent or father finds his child in the midst of a group of kids doing something foolish, and the first act of judgment is to his own child, right? We've all heard that and, and even said it as parents in our lives. We, I don't care what your friends were doing. They're not my child. You are. They'll get there, but first I'm dealing with you. You know better. This is a sobering reality that we do well to keep in mind. God will deal with his people when they are in sin. We continue our study now in these seven verses. The first church on the list is Ephesus. Uh, now, there's actually a strategic reason um, to the list of these churches. If you were to take the ancient postal route uh, in the ancient world, it would go in this order starting with Ephesus. Now, a little backdrop, a little context to, to uh, the city of Ephesus. It was a very big metropolis and influential city. Um, and it became known as the supreme metropolis of Asia. It was a free city in the sense that Rome allowed it to govern itself. There were no... Uh, Roman soldiers walking around, it was free to govern itself. As long as they paid their taxes, that's what all Rome cared about. The wealth and growth of Ephesus was due to the fact that three main roads convened there, and it had a harbor or port in which made it the greatest trade center of that area. Religiously, Ephesus was a center of worship for the fertility god or goddess Artemis, or known as Diana. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world is the temple to this goddess. This time, the priestesses were engaged in cult practice of prostitution, orgies, and all types of sexual immorality in the name of religious nirvana. The temple itself acted as an asylum for criminals and as a, a bank for kings. Go figure having a bank inside of a prison. Like. <laughs> Many merchants made a decent living setting up a shop at the temple selling idols, and, and witchcraft was heavily practiced in Ephesus at this time. We can read all about the cult following of Artemis in the book of Acts, chapter 19, when Paul comes to Ephesus proclaiming the gospel to both Jew and Greek there came a cry from idol makers to stop Paul because he was hindering their business. The level of debauchery that existed in Ephesus at this time was at a completely different level. A philosopher, um, a citizen named Heractylus, I believe is his name, uh, or yeah, Heractylus, about 540 BC, said of its inhabitants, they were fit only to be drowned and were worse than animals. It seems not much had changed since this time. Despite the rapid debauchery, though, despite the idolatry, despite the sexual immorality and the practice of witchcraft, the church flourished there. The church itself was thought to have been originated by Priscilla and Aquila for reasons listed in Acts chapter 18. And then later instructed by Paul himself. The church had a great number of leaders such as Apollos, Tychicus, Timothy and the Apostle John himself, according to tradition, lived his remaining years in Ephesus. Paul's ministry was greatly influential in Ephesus, and many turned to Christ, so much so that the natives brought all their books of magic to be burned, some 50,000 pieces of silver worth. Now, some time has passed since then and where we are at now in this letter. About 40 years, approximately, and in that 40 years, it is believed that the church of Ephesus was very largely instrumental 
if not solely responsible for the planting of the other six churches. Now let us look to our passage in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. First, let's remind ourselves who it is that is speaking. This is Jesus Christ. Now, though the apostles um, and their words to the church have just as much authority because inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is a bit different because it comes directly from the words of Christ. It has a different sense to it. They're not just John's instructions or, God, or John's words inspired by the Holy Spirit, but Christ himself has come to give these words direct. And I cannot imagine what it must have been like for the Ephesian church to first read this letter from the mouth of Christ. And to be honest, I find it personally terrifying. Let us take notice where he is. It says that he is in the midst of his people, walking amongst the golden lampstands who represent his church. And what an encouragement this is to all of us here today to the churches of Christ, to the people of Christ. God is not a God who is absent, uninvolved, but he is a God who walks in the midst of his people, in the midst of his church. He is there. Our Lord is faithful to his promise in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He makes a distinction, as we noted earlier, between the stars and the lampstands. The stars are the messenger of the church who is believed to be the elders or pastors of these particular churches. Now, we are not sure who might have been the pastor of the church at this time. But the warning here, no matter what the, um, no matter what the motives of the heart is, is just as much for him as it is for the congregation. Being a pastor, being ordained, does not elevate one above Warning. If anything, the leader of the church should be the first to heed the warning. With all fearfulness and trembling. For as James 3.1 states, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This message is for the church, pastor included. It is the responsibility of the pastor to reiterate this message to his people to proclaim it. Now it is not for the pastor to control the hearts of his congregation, nor is, the, nor is it possible for him to know the true motives or hearts of the people, but the pastor has a responsibility to be involved in the lives of his people, of his sheep, to listen to them, to watch them and examine them, to determine if he hears and sees Christ being formed in their lives. That is why it's so important for all of us to understand here that if you're going to be a part of a congregation, if you're going to be a member of a church, part of a body, you are submitting yourself to the authority of a pastor and elders of that church, to their instructions, exhortations, and even their disciplines. So what's going on in your life is very much so our business. Why? Because that man back there and the elders of the church have a responsibility and we have to give an account for the sheep entrusted unto us. We will give an account for the people and the sheep entrusted unto us. We must also notice the sovereignty of our Lord in this verse the Lord Jesus holds his messages in his right hand and walks in the midst of his church. And we'll see at the end of this text, he is the one who controls their future. The church is not dependent upon man for its survival in life. Jesus said in Matthew 16 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Churches today, and I use that term loosely, are so desperate to look for new and improved ways to build up and bolster their ministry. And it is only because it is in his sovereign hands that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is in Christ who builds and holds his church. And it is because of this knowledge 
that we must rely on him to build his church and look nowhere else. For no one knows and can care for the bride like the bridegroom. Verse 2. The Lord says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The Lord begins with the words, four words there. I know your works. These four words can be both encouraging and terrifying to hear dependent upon the one who hears them. To the Ephesian church here, it, it is meant to be a words of commendation. But could that be said of us here today? If Christ were to come here today and say, I know your works, would that be a good thing for you to hear? Would it be terrifying for you to hear that? What about this church as a whole? Because remember, this letter was most likely read aloud to the congregation. In what sense would these words be taken if they were addressed to RHC? I know your works. Could what be said in the following verses apply to us? Examine yourself this morning, I pray. Would these words from our Lord be welcomed by you or met with anxiety? It is easy for us to read this text or listen to this sermon as a, as a spectator. But remember, these words are directed to this church and to us this morning. For we serve the same Lord who still walks amongst his churches and knows all our works or lack thereof. This alludes to the description John gives of Christ having eyes of flames of fire. It's piercing. He knows. He sees through us. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. I remember listening to a R.C. Sproul talk about a uh, conversation he had with a man who was struggling with uh, pornography. And R.C. Sproul des decided to just continue to hit on the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere. And he asked the man, do you believe this? He said, yes, I do. He says, I don't think you do. Because if you did, you would tremble in fear when you looked at those things. You can't tell me you believe that the Lord God is present where you are, sees what you see, knows what you know, and you still continue to look at what you look at. These four words are very sobering. With regard to the Ephesians, these words are followed by a list of commendations from our Lord. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. The word toil here is uh, kopos in Greek, and it means to labor to the point of exhaustion. A labor that is physically, emotionally, and spiritually draining, a.k.a. faithful gospel ministry. This church was known to be laboring for the kingdom, to be working hard for the gospel, how very contrary this is today of the church. Where the 2080 rule exists. Now, I pray that that's not true here. I don't think it is, but for the most part, 20% of the church does all the serving and the majority of the giving. While the other 80% consumes. When we go to the uh, Shepherds Conference every year, 
We are in the midst of, of men, great godly men who, who lay out sermons that are convicting and powerful. Some of the greatest pastors that there are today. We get to hear their sermons. But the thing that we always walk away from, from those conferences, are the people serving. People taking their vacation time to work. And with 3,000 men, sometimes more, it is a lot of work. But you would never, ever guess that they would want to be anywhere else than there. Smiles on their face, thanking us for coming. Thanking us for what we do. Serving those hard-boiled eggs for Bruce. He loves them. Of all the preaching and the great teaching we hear there, which is edifying, we walk away from, one of the things that always sticks out is a, is a serving of that church, the people giving their time. And they do it. You can tell they, they do it because they, they love the gospel. They love the shepherds of the gospel. The Ephesian church believe, and these set of believers were not overachievers, but understood the cost of being followers of Jesus. They heeded Paul's advice to Timothy, who most likely reiterated it to them, 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has not been or has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Or Paul's words to the Philippians in 127, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or I am absent, I am here. Uh, or that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We must also remind ourselves that this was written during the, the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. Domitian's persecution against the Christians was unrelenting. He put to death numerous Christians as well as banished others seizing their property without trial. We often give, I mean, Nero was cruel, no doubt. He was, and he was twisted. But the persecution that Domitian handed out to the church was far more widespread and cruel. This is what the Ephesian believers faced every day. Not only did they toil and labor for the gospel, but they did so with patient endurance. This does not simply mean that they put up with it for the sake of the gospel, but rather readily accepted it. Readily accepted the hardships and sufferings that came with the Christian life. And how convicting this is for us today and me personally. Readily accepting, readily willing to face persecution, hardships, and even death for the gospel. Think of the things that we get bent out of shape about, things that rustle our feathers, things that we complain about today. This Greek word, hupomone, literally means to remain under. They eagerly persistent in the midst and willingly remained under persecution and loss for the sake of the gospel. Our Lord's commendation continues in saying that they cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. The Apostle Paul when it came time for him to depart after spending three years with Ephesian believers, warned them to guard the flock, knowing that fierce wolves, false teachers, were coming. And they would quickly come after his departure, departure not sparing the flock. He tells them in Acts 20, 28-35, that even 
from among themselves would arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It would appear that the Ephesians heeded this warning. They became Bereans in that they knew the word. And how do we know this? Because how else could they test and find out that which is false? Paul was correct in his warning, too, because during this time, false teaching of the Judaizers and their legalism, the Gnostics with their secret knowledge and the antinomianism with their licentiousness, lifestyle, were all very prevalent and were all claiming to be true. The Ephesians tested them against the scriptures and against the teachings of the apostles, and they were able to do this because what? Because they knew them well. The wolves of false teachings is just, if not more, prevalent today. They are literally knocking at your door, desiring to lead you astray. I understand that you may not know what they believe, know how to debate them on their fallacies and contradictions, Let me tell you, you don't have to. It's not to say it's not a good thing to do. I, I love apologetics, and I, I love you know, studying those things against the, uh, the scriptures. But what you need to know, more importantly than anything, is not what they believe, but what you believe. What you need to know is the infallible truth of Christ and the gospel. You know, bank tellers, I don't know if they do this today, but usually when banks used to, to uh, train their tellers in, in how to spot a counterfeit, they didn't flood them with examples of fake bills. They gave them the real thing and only let them see the real thing to examine it to know the ins and outs, every little piece of it, so that anything that was not like it, they would find and easily spot a mile away. Christians today are so biblically ignorant. And I use that word in the right sense. They're lacking in knowledge. And I myself am nowhere where I should be. We're so very ignorant of the Word of God, and that's not even the biggest issue I take with it. The biggest issue I take with it is that the church is okay with it. We're okay with being ignorant. We're okay with not knowing God's Word, without knowing God more. We show that we're okay with that by continuing in that ignorance and doing nothing about it, by not changing our habits, by allowing the flesh's desire to prevail over the spirits. Notice also that last part in verse 2. And found them to be false. Look what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. In the epistle to them, in chapter 5, verse 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. How do you deal with false teach teaching and teachers? Expose them. Expose their lies. How? By the word of truth. There were no attempts to spare one's feelings here. No attempts to say, well, that's your truth, and you have your truth, and I have mine. There was no calling false teachers brothers. They were and are wolves being used by the enemy to halt and lead astray the people of God. And there should be nothing that infuriates us more than those who profane our holy God by proclaiming a different gospel. There's so much that we get upset about. We get into heated arguments over politics, 
those who oppose our political party, or when someone talks negatively about our favorite sports team, our family, our friends, our, ourself. But we don't bat an eye at this. We don't bat an eye when the gospel is twisted or a Christ is blasphemed by these false teachers and their false gospels. Now, I'm not saying that we go toe-to-toe and fist fight with these people, but I am saying that we should, it should infuriate us. You, oh Christian, when your Savior, Master, and God is profaned, it should stir a righteous anger in you. And we must call out false teachers. We are to be the light of the world. And what does light do? It exposes the darkness. It exposes the deeds done in darkness. Be light. Verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The Ephesian church, church was just those who, who were persistent and who were passionate about the gospel, as verse 3 shows. There was no hidden, hidden motives. There was no hidden personal ambitions or agenda. All, they, all that they did willingly for the name of Christ, and there was no signs of them slowing down. What commendations from the Lord to this church? To be honest, this would be a, a church that every pastor would long to be at. Or maybe not. They might look at the pastor and say, no. Might be too convicting for a pastor to lead a church like this. From the outside, this is the model church. This is a great church, faithful church, hardworking, laboring. What fault could be brought against it? But just as the Lord told the prophet Samuel in 1 uh, or 1 Samuel 16, 7, for the Lord sees not as, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This must have been a shock to the Ephesian church, especially after hearing the, the list of great commendations that the Lord lists for them. I very much doubt that they saw this coming. And that's what's so terrifying about this passage. Matthew 7, 22-23 parallels this. Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy or teach in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? This group here as well were likewise doing the work and duty of a Christian and it is to these works they point. But Jesus will answer them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Perhaps that was the issue with the, with the Ephesian church. They were so caught up in the works of the ministry that they had placed their passion for Christ, for a love of these things. We likewise are no better, right? We, we work to provide for our families. There are many out there who work to provide for their families because they love their families and want to provide for them. And, and only in a matter of time before they start replacing their love for their family with their careers. MacArthur on this passage says, Christ's commendation for the Ephesian church becomes part of its condemnation. 
He says, in effect, yes, you are doctrinally and morally pure. You're zealous, hardworking, and disciplined. You were born in the heart of paganism and authenticated by miraculous signs and wonders. You were built up through an explosion of the gospel. You've had the best possible leadership, and you enjoy their rich heritage to this day. You had it all, and you still come faithfully. You still worship, and you still hold to the truth. But I know you do not love me like you did. I remember the first time a friend of mine or a colleague I worked with took me hiking top of Half Dome. For those of you who've never done it or are unfamiliar with it, it is, it's about 17 miles round trip, um, but eight and a half miles up. The one part in which is flat is sandy. <laughs> so it's no better, no easier. But I remember the first time I did it, I was in awe of the views I saw, of the mountain ranges hovering over me. To walk across these, these waterfalls and feel the mist on my face. Not to mention the prize at the end when you got to the top. And you looked out in this vast valley and you saw this beautiful creation. And were just in awe of it. My head the whole time was just on a swivel. I was so, it made such an impression on me that I... I I told myself that I was going to do this hike every year. And on my 10th time, I was going to hike it by uh, moonlight at night. And uh, I held to that, actually. Uh, I, I've hiked it 11 times. And I noticed, though, about the fifth time that I was hiking it, I was familiar with the hikes. I knew what was coming up. I knew what I had to do. And I realized that my face, my eyes, were no more three, four feet ahead of me. Looking down. Not looking out. And I realized about halfway, three quarters of the way up, I don't remember. I've been looking down this whole time, thinking about the next set of switchbacks that are coming up and the dreaded subdome, which is a straight up mountain of stairs, and, and the cables that I gotta grab onto and, and climb up. I realized that I didn't even look around to see the whole purpose, for me anyways, of the hike. was to look at the beauty. This is why I'm doing this. This is why I've come, to, to look at this beautiful sights. And the whole time, I was because I was so familiar with the hike, I just kept thinking, my, looking down and all right, I know I got the switchbacks coming up. I got to do this. I began noticing that as the dates for the, the hike approached, I no longer waited with excitement, but started to dread it a little bit. Focusing on the exhaustion of the hike. <clears throat> Pastors. Elders, worship team. Because of how frequent we do ministry, we too can fall in this mundane autopilot of sin. And that's what it is. We must examine our hearts before every sermon, before every rehearsal. 
before every night of, of even cleaning and getting this sanctuary set up and taking out the garbage. Why are we doing it? Why do you do it? Is it out of obligation or a sense of religious duty, piety, guilt, or possibly trying to earn favor? Are you here because that's what you do on Sundays? Or is it because you adore the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me ask. Is it because you would rather be nowhere else than with the people of God lifting up songs of praise to your Savior and King? I fear that there are those here today are here not because you love Christ. You are here because of maybe family or loved ones or a sense of obligation. And there will be, there are those here That your Christianity starts when you walk through those doors and it ends the moment you exit them. Christ has no, no other part of your life outside these doors. There will be no other thought of him until next service. Even throughout this service, your mind has been elsewhere. How many of us would be okay with a marriage like this? Where your spouse continued to do the same things that they always did, but you knew deep down that their love for you was gone. But they would stay with you because it beat the alternative. It's better than being alone. It's better than getting a divorce. So I'll stay. Would we commend a parent who provided everything for their children out of a sense of obligation? And not because they loved them? Is this you today? Examine yourselves. Scholars and commentators have, have differed in, in their views of this verse. Some think that the love that they had lost was that of for each other. And this may be. This was, in fact, what the Ephesians were commended for in Paul's epistle to them. In Ephesians 1.15, he says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And what they were exhorted to as well in, in Ephesians 4.32 and 5.2, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up, up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Both, I believe, are true, though. I believe both understandings and rendering of that verse, of this verse, is true. <clears throat> I believe that they had lost their love for Christ and it manifested itself in the loss of love for Christ's people. Jesus himself makes a direct correlation between being a true disciple of his and having love for the saints. In, um, in John 13, uh, 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciple. If you have love for one another. 1 John 4, 21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. A direct correlation between loving God and loving his people. If loving Jesus and being a true disciple 
of his manifests itself in a it will manifest itself in a love to those and all those who belong to him. And if that is true, then is not the opposite true? Those who have lost a love for him will most likely lose a love for his people. We just studied not long ago, John 21, 15 through 17, where Jesus asked Peter if he loves him three times. And Peter says, yes. Jesus replies to him, feed, tend my sheep. Again, another direct correlation between loving Christ and caring for the people of God. And this, of course, was in regards to, to teaching them the statutes of Christ, and which I am presuming the Ephesian church may have stopped doing. Remember, it is believed that they were very instrumental in the planting of the other six churches. It's believed, anyways. Perhaps they stopped doing this. Their, their desire of evangelism had ceased and had halted. I have met... Unfortunately, I have met some cold, merciless unforgiving and just plainly unloving Christians. We've seen it here in our own small, small gathering. And for, unfortunately, some are even in, in my camp of, of theology. They can fully explain and argue the doctrines of grace and, and tell you all about the doctrine of election and propitiation. but will look down on you for maybe not being as versed in these things or having a different opinion or view. I have been to churches and been greeted from the congregants, and it felt like a job interview. What do you believe? What do you mean by that? First Corinthians 8.1 this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This is where I believe the Ephesian church was. And in verse 5, we have the warning. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. This is the antidote to their situation. And if this is you, this is the antidote to your situation. Remember. This was also Paul's exhortation to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 12 to 13. Remember that you were at or remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember your situation before Christ called to you. Remember when you were forgiven. Remember that moment you felt that burden lifted. Remember being overwhelmed by his grace and mercy. You know, we sing of amazing grace, but we cease to be amazed by it. This is why I believe that it is so very important that we who have been in the faith and mature in the faith, it's so very important that we make every attempt to be at new believers' baptism. To see them coming out of the water with tears running down their face, hugging the pastor, hugging their loved ones. It reminds us of that time when we were forgiven. When mercy and grace found us. It's so mutually beneficial for new believers and mature believers to be with one another, for, for the new believer to, to uh, be discipled by the, by the mature believer and, and, and grow in their knowledge of God. And for the, for the mature believer to remember what it's like, to remember that passion of having that, that first love of being amazed by the gospel, the things in which angels long to look into. 1 Peter 
You know, the one thing that really rekindled my love and passion for hiking and for even half tone is bringing people along with me who had never seen it before. Seeing that awe that they have and, and asking questions and it makes you stop and yeah, that's what that mountain is and that's what that waterfall is and just seeing their awe in it and it kind of makes you look at, at it and like it is pretty amazing. This is what we must remember. Remembering though, and being convicted is not enough. We must repent. Repent and turn away from this cold love and do the works you once did. One might look at this and think, go back. But look at what they're doing. Look at what they're accomplishing. Look at the faith that, they're ha that they have. But despite their accolades, and they have fallen. And Jesus is not saying that these things were not necessarily wrong. We've established that already, but he'd rather go back and do the things they did before, no matter how little, with hearts of love for him, pure hearts. This is Jesus' call to the Ephesians, the call to us today who may be struggling with this issue. Remember, repent, and return to the works you did at first with glad hearts. He, in essence, is saying, if you will not act, I will. This may seem a bit harsh at first glance. I mean, after all, it's not like they were committing idolatrous, sexual immoral sins or, or teaching falsely. They are doing great things in the name of Christ. They are laboring hard for the gospel. I mean, look at the list again. What a great church. What do you mean you can put an end to this? This is not a, an apostate church. They are sound, Bible-believing, Bible-practicing church. That even in the midst of, of great persecution are standing firm for the sake of the gospel. So many sitting in service today, and maybe some of you here today, Think to yourself that you are doing God a favor by being here. Or that maybe God is pleased that you took some time out of your week to come to church. But your life with Christ starts no earlier than when you walk through those doors and ends again the moment you leave them. That's your Christian life. And you think that he is pleased with that. Jesus is saying, I want your heart. Not some of it. Not the majority of it. Not 99.99% of it. All of it. And if you will not give it to me, then go. We treat God as if he's some love-struck teenager that is longing for any type of attention and love or adoration that we give him and that he's pleased with that. I'm here every Sunday. That's got to count for something, doesn't it? No. Not if your heart is not longing for Christ. If your heart is not right, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. Ask yourself where your heart is, where your love is. Verse 6, Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now we do not know who the Nicolaitans were or what their practices were. And the scripture does give us some hints they may be associated with the teachings of Balaam, which led Israel astray into sinful practices. But due to time, I will not be going into some of those speculations of who they were. God did not see it fit to disclose it, that information to us, so neither will I. 
Suffice it to say that, that whoever they were, Christ hated the things that they practiced and commended the Ephesian church for the same hatred. And it does seem odd, the placing of this verse. In fact, all the commentaries or even sermons that I would listen to concerning this text, uh, they seem to, to group the commendations and this verse with those and then go into um, verse 5. I believe that with this exhortation, there might have been a desire to cease what they were doing. There are those that say doctrine divides and that, and all that matters is that you love Jesus. And I'm sure there are many out there who would get that from this text. But we cannot ignore that Jesus commends the Ephesians for being theologically sound and renouncing heresy. Doctrine does divide. It divides truth from falsehood. Christ is calling them back to the love they had at first, but he is certainly not telling them to abandon their zeal for righteousness or their hatred of evil. And that's why I believe this verse is where it is. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Our Lord is, is telling the Ephesian church, telling us today, listen, take heed lest you fall. Do not let today's message fall on deaf ears, nor let the conviction in your heart fade away without change. This is not a call to attain to a higher level of spirituality. Who is the overcomer then? He who believes in Jesus is the Son of God, 1 John 5, 5, a.k.a. every true believer. The tree of life is the same tree of life last mentioned in the Garden of Eden. This tree is representative of eternal life. And it is Christ who gives his people access to it. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. 14. And notice where this tree is. And in the paradise, the Garden of God. What made the Garden of Eden so great? God communed and fellowshiped with man. That's what made it paradise. In closing, did the Ephesians heed the word of Christ? Maybe. Maybe they did. But there is no church there now. There's no city there. And just as the act of judgment on the church was also an act of mercy, maybe there was an act of mercy on God to not allow them to continue in a loveless autopilot of religion. Maybe it took him closing and shutting down that church to get them to wake up. There's so much that I hope that the Lord has pressed upon your heart this morning. There have been multiple applications in these seven verses. And maybe you're here and you can't recount of a time when you had that first love. And you're probably an unbeliever. The words repent reply to you. Turn from your ways. Repent. Cling to Christ. Cling to the cross. Plead with him to have mercy. For those of us who are in ministry, or any act of service, especially in, in teaching capacity, I know it can be hard. I know it can be tedious. And sometimes it may feel like there is little difference that is being made. But be encouraged by our Lord's words. I know your works. Ministry can be a thankless job. Serving in church can be a thankless job, but we don't do it for the applause of man. But out of a heart of thanksgiving, we don't do it for others. We don't even do it for ourselves. But we do it for him and his glory. But also take heed. And this goes for all of us. Let us examine ourselves this morning. Has your love been fading?
Have you just been going through the motions? If so, repent now. Let me ask you something. Where would Christianity be today if all Christians had your level of devotion, your level of love for Christ? We have been called to be ambassadors of this love, to be laborers of our King, and to do the work of an evangelist. But we cannot and we will not faithfully do this if we not have a deep love for Him. For you will not love the work if you love not the master. Examine yourself this morning. Where is your heart? Where is your love? Where is your devotion?